Cyberspace, you know, there are a lot of companies out there willing to sell shady customers the tools they need to spy on just about anyone. All over the world, software vendors like Hacking Team and NSO Group will help you break into a cell phone uh, and read email you're not supposed to. That might soon be changing. I'm going to close Slack so you don't have to hear those messages. Uh, that might soon be changing with us today to talk about this and more is Motherboard Senior Staff Writer Lorenzo Franceschi Bicarai. It's the subject of his new piece on the site, The U.S. Crackdown on Spyware Vendors is Only Beginning. Lorenzo, it's a day. How are you? I'm okay, all things considered, and I'm glad to be back on the show. Excellent. Uh, people are telling me in chat, can you guys hear me? Are we muted? I think we're okay. Uh, thank you for, yeah. You're getting sound shadow? I don't know what sound shadow is. Sounds cool, though. It sounds, it does sound cool. Okay, they can hear us. Okay, perfect. So sorry about that. Um, all right, so let's talk about this this piece. This The U.S. crackdown on spyware vendors is only beginning. Um, what exactly happened earlier this week, Lorenzo? Apologies. Um, so last week, the... Uh, Department of Justice in California indicted uh, a Mexican citizen, or rather announced the settlement um, the, uh, of an indicted citizen, a Mexican citizen, who admitted to having conspired to wiretap and uh, sell uh, wiretapping and surveillance devices to the government of Mexico. The reason why the US DOJ is involved in this case is because as part of his activities as a reseller of surveillance technology, the citizen was named Carlos Guerrero, um, also uh, spied on a company in Florida. And uh, the U.S. accused, accused them of um, helping, um, like, for example, they cited a few examples of, uh, of potential crimes. One of them was that he helped a mayor in Mexico to spy on a political opponent using um, software made by Hacking Team. For those of you who don't remember, Hacking Team was a spyware company based in Milan, Italy, that sold uh, computer spyware and, and later mobile spyware to governments around the world. For a while, it was the biggest uh, company selling this. They had, like, I think around almost 40 customers around the world, anywhere from uh, Southeast Asia to Latin America, Europe. Uh, they even sold to the DEA at some point. Uh, the reason why this case is very interesting is because until now we hadn't seen the DOJ go after resellers. Uh, these are people like this Carlos Guerrero in question here. They are companies that helped um, other companies like Hacking Team make deals in um, in Mexico and other places. NSO, which is a competitor of Hacking Team, which who is which is now the the mark you know the industry leader. Uh, in the surveillance spyware world, uh, also has used the uh, resellers around the world. So, so it's an open question now: what's going to happen to these resellers? Um, should they avoid going to Miami on vacation? Uh, that's 
probably, I would say. But I get it. It's nice. Nice Cuban food. So maybe they will want to do that. Can you explain a little bit about how this software actually works and functions? Like, have you ever seen its UI and like, what, what exactly, how exactly does it work? Yeah, so this is pretty standard or was, you know, Hacking Team uh, was disbanded a couple of years ago or rather was acquired and then uh, rebranded. What they used to make was uh, initially it was a computer spyware. So it was a software that would get installed surreptitiously on a target's computer and um, would allow its um, users who are government government agents, government um, employees, to spy on the target computer. So they would be able to intercept emails, monitor um, social media activity, uh, you know, even turn on the webcam, turn on the microphone, record conversations. Later on, uh, hacking team also developed mobile spyware uh, with the same capabilities. They would be able to hack into phones, turn on the microphone, intercept messages and calls, all these kind of things that, um, you know, cops or spies may be interested in. And... Uh, yeah, I just want to say that like this has become like a pretty big industry, uh, you know, multi-billion dollar industry. Uh, there's companies everywhere, as I mentioned. NSO is probably the leader right now, although as we've spoken in previous shows, they're not doing super well right now. Um, but yeah, there's, there was Finn Fisher, or there is still is Finn Fisher, a German company, and many, many competitors around the world. Yeah, this was another one of my big questions is who exactly are the clients here? Who is buying this stuff? So companies like Hacking Team or NSO are exclusively marketing to governments. So they do not sell to you know private individuals or um, businesses. They only sell to government organizations. Um, so, for example, Hacking Team used to sell to a bunch of Mexican local authorities, uh, state state uh, law enforcements. Uh, they sold to the DEA in the U.S. The FBI for a while tested it as well. Uh, so we're talking about basically any law enforcement or intelligence agency in the world. Um, hacking team used to say that they wouldn't sell to repressive governments. That was not totally true. And also it depended on your definition of repressive governments. Uh, NSO has made the same claims, but you know, as part some of their customers have been revealed to be the likes of Saudi Arabia, the UAE, um, you know, Governments that are not exactly democratic or have a good track record of uh, of um, they have a good track record of repressive uh, policies. All right. So, what laws were actually violated here? What was he arrested for? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is interesting because you know, on the face of it, this does not appear to be a case that the DOJ, that the U.S. DOJ, should have um, gone after. You know, we're talking about a Mexican citizen with a who founded a Mexican company that was the one that worked with Hacking Team and the Mexican government customers. But the DOJ has made the case that this was under their jurisdiction because in one of the cases of abuse that they cite in the settlement, the the mayor of a Mexican state, uh, sorry, the mayor of a Mexican city hacked someone and they hacked um, their Hotmail and Gmail account. So the argument here is, you know, these are U.S. companies um, with U.S. servers. So if someone hacks someone using these companies, then it it, it is a crime uh, in the U.S. There was also another case where Guerrero and uh, and some of his employees 
uh, intercepted communications from a Florida-based business, which is a more clear example of, uh, you know, a wiretapping crime in the U.S. So, yeah, the charges were illegal wiretapping and conspiracy to wiretap. So this is interesting that um, cyber stuff has made the jurisdiction of these things very interesting. And would you kind of say that this is a maybe test case is the wrong word, but this is a, a, a sign of things to come, I guess. I think it, I think it may very well be a sign of things to come. And that's not, that's not really just my, my opinion in the, in the press release where, when the DOJ announced this, um, the U S attorney, Randy Grossman was quoted as saying, and I quote, today's guilty plea helps stem the proliferation of digital tools used for oppression and advances the digital security of both U S and Mexican citizens. Um, and essentially the, you know, the DOJ made, um, made a point here that they are going to go after companies like this. They're going to go after people like Guerrero. You know, this is not, uh, just the Mexican problem. Um, the U S DOJ clearly sees this as something that can, um, hurt the U S national security. And so they're going to go after it in many ways. And recently we've seen, um, before this case, we've seen, for example, the U.S. government announced sanctions against the NSO, or rather they added NSO to a block list uh, that prevents U.S. companies from selling software to, to NSO. So we're seeing really a multi-pronged approach to clamping down on this industry. For people that don't have the background, uh, can you tell us a little bit about the NSO group, who they are, and what kind of stuff that they sell? Mm-hmm. Yeah, NSO Group is a Israeli-based company. They are around 10 years old at this point. Um, they are like hacking team, uh, a vendor, which specializes in making and selling surveillance tools and hacking tools. Uh, in their case, they specialize in mobile mobile surveillance. So they're very well known for making iPhone and Android hacking tools. Uh, they sell them to governments. Um, they're a pretty large company. Reports say that they are around 600 people, you know, compared to Hacking Team, for example. Hacking Team was like 40, 45 people. So they're, they're a pretty big company and um, they have been in the news a lot last year after a coalition of uh, uh, newspapers and media, media outlets published a bunch of uh, stories detailing alleged abuses. Uh, by their customers, abuses all over the world, Hungary, Mexico, Saudi Arabia. And uh, yeah, they're, they're really under under a lot of pressure right now because of this sanction by the U.S. government, because of all the scandals. Um, their investors are getting a little antsy. Uh, and it's really unclear what's going to happen to them. Uh, but I think it's important to to stress that the industry is not going anywhere. You know, we're not going to move to a world in which the police does not need to monitor a terrorist or a criminal's phone or computer. If anything, they're going to need that more and more. So even if NSO were to disappear, which is very much an open question, and, you know, I I don't know if that's going to happen, uh, some, somebody else will step in. Well, and it also strikes me that this is stuff that we know to a certain degree the U.S. government is doing too, right? I mean, we may not have all the details, but we do know. I mean, there was a, there was a story uh, not too recently about the CIA's uh, information gathering stuff. Um, so, do you think maybe maybe this is too speculative a question? 
but do you think it's a little bit hypocritical for us to go after private for the U.S. government to go after private companies that are doing um, some of the same stuff that it's doing? I think it's a good question, and um, and yeah, that is a, that is something that could be argued, right? Like as I said, this kind of industry is not going to go anywhere. Uh, it exists in the U.S. as well. There's an interesting um, trend in the market, though, that I think it's important to remember. The U.S. government is very um, is not very happy usually to make deals with foreign co- companies on such you know on such sensitive. Uh, operations uh, like spying on someone although as i said like the da had a had a contract with the with the hacking team some local police departments considered buying nso so you know it's not unprecedented but when you talk about intelligence agencies like the nsa they do prefer local vendors so yeah you could argue that um you know the u.s is doing this as well there's u.s companies doing this but i guess what the u.s government is arguing is that um, as opposed to what happens in the U.S., um, companies like Hacking Team and NSO are acting in a less regulated market. They're acting; they're working with co- governments that are, um, you know, have questionable human rights records, and uh, that's why they deserve more attention. All right, we're going to pause there just very briefly. Uh, for a break. We will be right back after uh, just a brief moment of silence, and then we're going to do a cipher. Are you going to stick around with me, Lorenzo? I will. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. All right. Thank you for sticking around. Uh, all right, Lorenzo. So welcome back to Cyber. And now it's time for Cypher. It's that part of the show where we decipher the week's biggest tech stories. Um, so if you're watching this live, you know what day it is. You know what's going on in the news. If you're listening to this later, we're recording this on February 24th. Uh, it is just shy of 4 p.m. on the East Coast. Uh, Russia has invaded Ukraine. Um, the newsroom has been a busy place today. Uh, you know, I think this particular episode of cyber feels a little rough and ragged around the edges, um, because we've been extremely busy. Uh, you and I have both been talking to people and getting stories out. Um, and just, yeah, I mean, chat, like, like, as soon as we start talking about it, chat is kind of comes alive. I feel like this is the big story right now. This is what everyone's talking about and what everyone wants to know about. Uh, I, I want to ask you like a big picture question, first of all, because you're not, um, you're, you know, of European extraction. And I think that American perspectives on this, in my opinion, have been a little weird uh, in the lead up to it. Um, how are you feeling about all of this? You know, what do you see big picture? Well, I think there's a lot of concern in Europe because, you know, this is a, a war on uh, the European Union's doors or, you know, at, at its borders, Ukraine borders with uh, Slovakia and Romania. 
and Poland. So, you know, this is really happening uh, in the backyard of the European unions. Um, so I think there's a lot of uh, nervousness, a lot of uh, unease. I was talking to someone like a, a friend last week and they were talking about like going to the countryside for a little bit, just in case they're nowhere close to Ukraine. Um, you know, I personally think that that's maybe a little bit premature, but we really don't know what's going to happen, right? This is the very first, or this is like the biggest war in Europe since World War II. Uh, so there's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of uh, a lot of nervousness, for sure. I think we keep saying that. I want to push back against it being the biggest land war in Europe since World War II. I think we forget the 90s and right. the Balkans, that's true. right? Like there's this, there's this whole war... <laughs> That I would I would say I think um, established the way the U.S. and the EU or NATO uh, looked at the way like thought of itself and what it could do and what its power could be used for and then got us into a lot of trouble over the next twenty years um, and we we forget that war for some reason um, but let's get into some of the stories that you and I have been working on um, cyber war basically. Uh, so the first one I think that was really interesting today uh, from you is that the Russian government websites are currently down. Are they still down? Uh, and what happened? Do we know what happened? So we don't know what happened. And I'm actually just checking live if the Kremlin's website is still down. Uh, it was like a, an hour ago. But so just to set the stage, obviously, uh, the lead up to this uh, war this invasion was uh, relatively long. You know, people have been talking about this happening for weeks. Um, and we have seen some activity in the cyber cyberspace, for lack of a better word. Um, there have been a bunch of uh, denial, distributed denial of service attacks. Those are attacks that essentially flood uh, target websites with uh, traffic, uh, forcing them to go down, you know, making them inaccessible. Uh, it happened like uh, 10 days ago. Uh, with uh, some Ukrainian government websites and uh, some large Ukrainian banks. The Ukrainian government was quick to accuse Russia of doing doing that. Uh, and the U.S. government also surprisingly came out just a couple of days later, also attributing those attacks to Russia. So, And uh, the other important piece of context that we should mention here is that yesterday, some um, cybersecurity companies, uh, namely ESET and Symantec, found uh, some malware in uh, on uh, Ukrainian systems. Uh, this was destructive malware called, uh, you know, wipe. It's a type of malware known as uh, wiper malware because it wipes machines and makes them uh, unusable. Um, it's unclear who that was, but you know, this is all to say that there's been a lot of uh, activity in Ukraine and around Ukraine in terms of uh, cybersecurity and a lot of speculation about what cyber, you know. What cyber warfare, if you want, if you want to call it that way, um, what role that would play in this conflict? Uh, you know, obviously, <clears throat> once the tanks start rolling in and bombs start falling down, um, anything related to cybersecurity takes um, takes um, you know is not as important anymore. But it, it can have some, uh, it can have a good, it can have an important role in terms of surveillance, in terms of collecting intelligence. Maybe even uh, stuff like taking down power grids, which Russia has done in the past in Ukraine. So what happened today is that a bunch of uh, some, a few websites, a few Russian government websites were inaccessible for a bit. Um, one of them was the Kremlin's official website, which I just checked. It's back up. 
it's really unclear what happened. Some people were speculating that they were sort of geofencing it, meaning that Russia was making it unavailable to foreign visitors, but we couldn't really confirm that because even with a Russian VPN, we could not access it. You know, it could be anything from an outage or uh, maybe some a DDoS attack launched by God knows who. You know, could be the Ukrainian government, but could also just be a bunch of kids like this has happened in the past. Um, but yeah, it's interesting because there's a lot of speculation about what, um, you know, what these, uh, the two parties in this war could do in cyberspace. Yeah, it's really interesting. I want to throw some things uh, from chat into the conversation. Um, I just tried to access it. Also, I couldn't get into the the basic websites. Several people in chat have said that it's been down for them for many hours. Um, one thing I think I, I, I think is interesting here, uh, I'm going to from a chatter, I'm going to call Lumpa. Um, let's not forget that Russia has been planning on this for a long period. They are most likely, most likely also very prepared cyber wise. I think that's a very good point. I would also point out that, uh, Russia has been doing this for a long time. They have kind of a playbook with cyber. Uh, the, I first remember hearing about in 2008, uh, when they invaded Georgia, um, it was the first time I remember Georgians like reporting of these mass outages, power outages, internet outages, sites being inaccessible ahead of the invasion. Um, so we've seen this playbook before, right? Uh, I don't remember Russian websites ever going down and I could be wrong. Again, there's lots of information out there and this feels different. This whole war feels different than previous conflicts involving Russia from the past 15 years or so. Um, so we'll see the, the other thing I think is really interesting and I want to get your thoughts on this. I mean, again, we're going to speculate a little bit. Um, people are asking what possible U S cyber involvement might look like. And if that occurs, how attributable might it be? And would that be considered, you know, do you think that something like a cyber attack rises to the level of being considered traditional conflict or traditional war? Is that something that you might see real world reprisals from later? Um, I would argue that we're sussing all of that out right now. Like all of the standards around that stuff are being established in the moment. But what are your thoughts, Lorenzo? Yeah, I think that's the short answer. There aren't really a lot of uh, written rules over this. Uh, there's been a lot of, uh, you know, academic and academic discussions about the uh, around this, think tanks uh, chiming in in the past, cybersecurity experts saying that, yeah, this should be considered war, other than say, don't be ridiculous. It's just the uh, ones and zeros. Um, so, yeah, the answer to, like, is this, you know, could, like, a cyber attack lead to kinetic response? It's unclear. I guess it depends, right? You know, something like Stuxnet did have uh, real-life implications. You know, I'm talking about the malware that U.S. and Israel planted on uh, Iranians' uh, nuclear facilities uh, that slowed down the enrichment of uranium and, like, you know, crippled um, Iran's uh, nuclear development. You know, something like that could be considered an act of war. It's, you know, some people could would call that a sabotage. You know, taking out the electrical grid in Moscow, is that an act of war? I don't know. I think it's, uh, I think, as you said, it's an act of war if the victim considers it an act of war, right? Yeah. If, yeah, if whoever gets hacked considers that an act of war and they retaliate, then yes, it will be an act of war. But, you know, there isn't really a playbook here that we can uh, go back to. In terms of the first question, which is which was what's the U.S. role or what could it be? 
you know, we're all speculating here. It's unclear what the U.S. wants to do other than, uh, um, you know, imposing sanctions, which has happened in the past few days and has happened again today. Um, again, it's speculative, but, you know, the U.S. is the biggest power in the world, not just militarily, but also in cyberspace. So they could do anything from, you know, taking down the Internet in portions of Russia uh, intercepting communications uh, on the ground, you know, to collect intelligence and pass it on to the Ukraine. Um, you know, they could do a lot, uh, and they may be preparing to do that. Uh, and you know, those are all things that have been done before. I think during the there were reports during the last election in 2020 that the U.S. took down uh, the internet from um, some Russian government agencies uh, that were like. Uh, working on disinformation campaigns. So, you know, there's, there, there are precedents for this, and they may, they may very well not be considered acts, acts of war, but just, you know, regular espionage and cyber shenanigans. Yeah, it's hard to say. It's hard to say how anyone's going to react to that stuff. I think, um, judging on what we've already seen of Biden, I think he's being especially cautious, right? I mean, he's not, he's, I think the sanctions are perhaps not going as far as, uh, some people would like, right? And he has repeatedly said that there will be no American troops fighting in Ukraine. Um, it wouldn't surprise me with his age and his understanding of uh, the internet that he would maybe consider it a traditional act of war and he would hold off. But again, we're just speculating. We don't know. Let's talk about something we do know about. <laughs> um so this, I, I wrote this story today that uh, I think you found interesting, Lorenzo, right? <laughs> yeah, as uh, yeah, I thought that this was a very good example of a uh, you know how much the internet allows anyone to follow a geopolitical event like this. I'm talking about the story with, with the headline: Google Maps live track traffic showed the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Can you walk us through what happened here, Matt? Yeah, I'm throwing it to chat so they can get up to speed with the story as I've got it pulled up here. Um, so basically what happened is at 3.15 a.m. Um, in Ukraine, uh, Jeffrey Lewis, who is guy, who's a guy that I've used as a source on a lot of different stories. He's traditionally uh, in the nuclear world. Um, he uses a lot of open source intelligence to uh, – to like suss out what is going on in say with say like China building new ICBM facilities and um, uh, 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 like stuff in Iran and like spinning up the uh, like enriched uranium and like that kind of thing. Um, he noticed on Google maps that there was a traffic jam uh, on a road from on the, on the Ukrainian border. And this was about 45 minutes before the invasion started in full. And he kind of realized uh, that there's this big traffic jam and he's like, oh shit, the invasion is actually about to start. Now, what we didn't know at the time, and he told me this morning <laughs> when I talked to him, um, because he had extra information uh, that he did not share with the public, uh, which was good ethics of open source intelligence. Um, they had satellite imagery that they had pulled off of a public satellite uh, 24 hours before that showed like a mass movement of Russian armor and troops right into that region. So then knowing that and having that picture and then seeing like the traffic basically get stopped on that road where they saw all that armor, he was like, 
oh, I'm one of the first people to know that the invasion is about to happen. And it's happening because of, of like uh, of a uh, uh, traffic patterns on Google Maps, which is just completely wild. Like, what kind of world do we live in, right? Where we we know we where Google where Google Maps is the first thing to tell us that a war is about to happen, right? If you have the other pieces of information, um, yeah, we look we all looked at the picture and we're like, oh shit, it's coming. He said. <laughs> So it's the prior work of knowing that there's a giant Russian armored unit sitting right there that allowed us to say like, oh, I know that this is a traffic jam. They're getting on the road. Um, the other thing that I thought he said that was really interesting um, is that uh, we live in this world where all of these companies are hoovering up data and making it of use to us and they make our lives comfortable. But when we we, we get into these confrontations where the data could be used in insidious ways, right? We have this like did we need to know this was this a good thing to be putting out but also how does google shut it down does google turn off all the traffic data in ukraine for the duration well that could hurt people trying to flee right it's a hard question to ask it's really strange uh, and he said i think big data companies often don't want to face squarely how useful their data can be i mean it's cool when we do it right it's maybe less cool if russians were able to do something similar to you know spotting an offense from ukrainians um, and this goes into a conversation I had yesterday with Jason um, about like the ethics of open source intelligence stuff. Um, there's a lot of people that are getting into this field and are like they're amateurs, like learning how to suss out what's real and what's not on social media, following this war specifically. And I would just caution people to be very, very careful and to like triple confirm things before they put anything out there. Um, cause one, like literally before, right before I logged onto the call, I was seeing uh, footage that was being attributed, um, as like anti-aircraft fire on a Russian jet. Well, it was an A-10 Warthog that was being fired on, uh, which is, uh, a, a plane that I know that Russia doesn't have. Uh, and if you looked a little bit closer, it was footage from a video game. It was Arma footage. Um, that someone had put up and said was from, you know, the front lines. So like that kind of stuff is everywhere now, everywhere right now. And the other thing that we have to be careful about, as, as Lewis said, is that this is life and death stuff. This is life and death for people. Um, and if you figure out using satellite imagery or Google Maps or whatever else, what troop movements might be, don't share it. Don't don't put that out there. Um, because it's, it's information that could get people killed, you know? Um, and there's, there's so many ways, like I was listening last night to uh, a UHF band of, uh, the fighters, the, the Russian fighter pilots, like you can, it's easy now if you kind of know what to do to like, listen in on that stuff and get that information. Um, but you have to be careful about what you amplify and what you share and is it worth it? And often it, it isn't. So I just want to have that word of caution as we go forward. <laughs> yeah, as you said, I think it's important to remember that a lot of stuff on Twitter may not be true. You know, there's just a lot of, uh, first of all, there's a lot of actually coordinated professional disinformation and misinformation going on. You know, companies and governments that put out stuff with the intent of confusing people, with the intent of deceiving people. So the public really needs to be careful what they amplify. And, and it's not just governments and companies. It's also just trolls that like to 
make you know embarrass people who just want to go viral with their OSINT. Yeah, uh, so yeah, there's been a lot less shit posting at the beginning, but I like the first twelve hours or so. I think people were really shocked, but I am seeing that that side of it, like the irony poisoned people, starting to kind of ramp up and put really bizarre things out there. Um, so I'm sure that'll get worse as the we as uh, as time wears on. Um, so speaking of sanctions and reprisals, um, Zelensky kind of did this step-by-step list of things that he would like to see happen to Russia, right? Um, and one of those things was uh, making it harder for what, – what exactly was this? Because this is a story that you wrote, Lorenzo. Would banning Russia from getting software updates make it easier to hack? I'll throw it into the chat, uh, and you can tell me about what's going on. Yeah, so this story um, started when Rafael Sater from Reuters posted a larger version of that list. So there's a public list of um, sort of, you know, reprisals that the Ukrainian government was asking the U.S. to do, sort of like suggested actions to respond to the invasion. Um, And Rafael got a hold of a longer list um, that uh, Ukrainian diplomats sent him. And the list included a lot of things. Um, The thing that really caught my attention was uh, a call for a ban on software updates to um russia not just russian government russian citizens so ukraine was basically arguing you know cut off russia from getting patches on you know i don't know windows ios whatever any kind of software they're using Uh, and the idea you know it's not spelled out in the document but the idea is to make life harder you know for russians um make it harder to use any kind of software and also theoretically um, it could make them more vulnerable to cybersecurity at- attacks because if you're not able to update your software, if you're not able to apply security patches, then you are vulnerable to uh, simpler and easier to pull off attacks. It's unclear if the US is going to do this. It's also unclear how you would be able to do it. I spoke to some some experts um who were intrigued by this idea. You know, it's not impossible. The U.S. does uh, have uh, similar sanctions in place for countries like Iran or North Korea or Cuba. So it could be it could be done, but, you know, the repercussions for doing that are unclear. There's, a, you know, there's U.S. companies in Russia. You know, could they be kicked out at that point? Would their employees uh, be face any reprisals? Yeah, it, it's uncharted territory. Do you think it would work? Like, meaning, would it make them easier to hack if you couldn't update to Windows 11? I think in theory, yes. Um, Yeah, in theory, yes. Uh, There has been a movement inside the Russian government for the last 10 years to move to open source software rather than closed source uh, proprietary software. But I don't know how successful it has been. You know, I don't... I'm not sure if like the GRU runs on Linux or Ubuntu, you know, that's that, that, that would kind of surprise me. Um, so yeah, in theory it would be, you could, uh, do some damage by, by limiting their updates. I just don't know how you do that in practice. Like, do you just blow, you know, prevent Microsoft from sending updates to any Russian IP? Is there any way to get around that from, for Russia? It, it just sounds like a very, it sounds like a very hard thing to implement, and also with limited, uh, with limited, um, limited impact. Especially now that the war has moved, uh, you know, to the 
real world with people getting killed and uh you, you know people fighting on the ground right and i also think that it would create it's not like people can't pirate security updates right and it's not like it's that stuff kind of stuff isn't ubiquitous all over the rest of the world. So yeah, it would be incredibly hard in the internet. So diffuse, it would be incredibly hard to, uh, to, to like put together. Yeah. Uh, and, and it may, it may hurt more like regular citizens than government agencies. So like, what is the impact there? Um, I want to address this question that just came in chat. What's your theory? What will be up next after Russia has fully conquered Ukraine? Do you believe he's craving to be the greatest B in the history books? Will he forcibly reunite the Slavic countries? I think beware of anyone that tells you they know what's going to happen or has a good theory about what's going to happen. Um, you know, we spent the last 10 years, we spent the last couple of weeks and months, lots of people making predictions about what was going to happen. And the only person that really knew what was going to happen was Putin. Um, we can take, and we're journalists, so we, we speculate a little bit, but we try to be very, very careful, um, about what we put out there, or at least I do. I think Lorenzo, you do too. Um, and I, and I just, I see so many journalists making predictions and falling flat on their face and being wrong and being incredibly wrong, especially in the lead up to this. So I, I don't like to do it. Um, I think you just watch the information as it comes out. And uh, kind of make your own judgments about what you think is going to happen. Um, but yeah, I think watch Moldova, watch Belarus, um, and just be careful about what you trust online right now. Um, and I think that's going to wrap it up for this week's, for this uh, second cyber. Uh, Lorenzo, where can people find your work? They can find me at Lorenzo FB on Twitter. And I'm at MJ Galt on Twitter. I'm going to be writing about this kind of stuff for the foreseeable future. We will be back next week with two more episodes of Cyber. If you missed the beginning of this episode, it's going to be uploaded as a podcast very soon. Um, please follow us on here. Uh, and it uh, you'll get updates whenever we go live, typically shooting for like 4 p.m. on a Wednesday, but things are a little chaotic right now, so they're going to kind of come as they come. And I'm sure we'll be, again, talking about Ukraine more in the future. Thank everyone for coming by. Coming by. Thanks for joining the chat, and we will uh, stay safe. We will talk to you again soon. Bye. Bye, everyone. 